There are a million reasons to listen to Odeo, and this is one. Do you reckon they're really bricklayers? Some guys are saying... So let me get this straight. This is like a Christian music and arts festival, right? Like it's music, lots of arty kind of people here, right? And yesterday Kevin says, like, if there are any bricklayers here... Would you just identify? So I remember I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, right. There'll be bricklayers here, sure. Like really arty, creative bricklayers. <laughs> I'm thinking, Kev, go down the street, get some guy with a big belly and a blue singlet. Like, and what do we get? We get two gorgeous young female artistic musical bricklayers. <laughs> Are we being had or what? I mean, it's just. No, I'm not asking you to speak. Go away. Go on. <laughs> um, if you weren't here last night, my name is Michael Frost and uh, I got to speak at this seminar three years ago and I had a little tiny sneak appearance about ten years ago and um, when uh, Jan and Kev rang me, well, I think they ran into me at Manly somewhere, I think, and uh, said, <laughs> I just ran into me and said, oh, we need a speaker, how about you? Um, I, um, I said yes straight away. I said yes straight away because I had been personally so enriched by the last coup that I was at. I can't remember what year that was, but a few years ago. And also because of my great sadness about this being the last Kuma convention or seminar because uh, I felt, from the little I knew, looking from the outside, that this group of people, or the groups of people that have made up this group of people over the years, have had significant impact in our churches around this country. And, you know, it's not Hillsong, it's not gigantic, it's not uh, the entertainment centre, but who gives up? I mean, it's, uh, it's a, a bunch of people coming to some, you know, goodness knows, tiny little town called Cooma, uh, centre of the universe. <laughs> Come to, uh, come to Kuma to kind of cook up uh, the most spooky, subversive, crazy dreams for what our church could be like. And I, I've actually been very impressed by it. I'm really sad it's the last one. And I suppose we'll get sadder and sadder as the, the days go by. But if this is your first uh, Kuma, you've come in at the very end of what I believe has been uh, an embryo for a movement in our churches. And I'm honoured to have been, I was honoured to have played any part in it. I'm honoured to be back again uh, for our last one. Now what I want to say to you is that um, uh, if you haven't heard me speak before, uh, the first sessions of things like this, especially when they go for five or six days, are usually a little bit um, unsettling, I suppose. You usually don't end up liking me very much after the first session. And believe me, I want you to like me so much. <laughs> because usually what I'm doing kind of in the first session, maybe the first two sessions, is I want to kind of raise a whole lot of questions. I want to pop a whole lot of balloons and I want to poke some holes in some of the edifices that the church has built up as though these are sanctified and you can't question them. I want to question a whole lot of stuff. And so usually at the end of the first session, people think, where is he coming from? Who is he? What's he believe? What, what's, what's true? What's not true? And so what I want you to do is cut me a bit of slack. Uh, I want you to just kind of sit with it. I want you to allow those questions and uncertainties and worries that you might have at the end of this session just to be there. Don't freak out. It's a little, we'll be all right. 
God is in control. Even if I say something that's not right, God will be in control. So just let it hang there, even if you're a little bit concerned or unsettled. I know some of you, and I know some of you, it'll be like water off a duck's back. It'll be like, yep, we heard this before. Let's, let's press on. So some of you, you'll be right up for this. Others of you, I might offend you a little bit. And believe me, I've built a whole ministry out of offending people. So, uh, <laughs> so you know, seems to be working. God's still with me. So bear with me and uh, sort of buckle up and hang on. We're going to start our first session. It does become better as the week goes on. But let's bow and pray uh, before I speak. Father, you know me, I don't want to speak untruth and I don't want to be provocative or offensive just for the sake of it. Lord, what I want to do, Lord, is to be part of a movement that as we just sang before, is a wind of change, a change in our churches, an unleashing of the, the missional genius that was Jesus and Paul and Peter and Timothy and all the first followers of Jesus, Father. But that genius, that spark that your Holy Spirit unleashed on this world, which has been so subdued by the institutionalisation of the church, Father, needs to be unleashed again, Father. Lord, we know it's been unleashed at various times throughout history. We find ourselves now, Father, in a really decisive time, certainly in the history of the Western world, Western civilization, a time where particularly young people are yearning, Father, for an experience of the supernatural, a time, Lord, where our churches seem more irrelevant than they have ever been before. And so, Father, I pray that what I say now would be acceptable in your sight. I pray, Father, that those that hear these words offended or disturbed or thrilled or whatever the case may be, Father, might receive them in such a way, Lord, that allows your spirit to work in our hearts and make us the people that you're calling us to be. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I just implied in my prayer just then, I'm going to say something you've probably heard a million times before. I don't think there's a Christian speaker in the world who doesn't say this line at some stage. Everyone says, you know, we are living in times of unprecedented social change in Western civilization. Have you heard that a zillion times before? Like we just say it all the time, don't we? We don't do anything about it, but we say it over and over. What we know is that in the world of arts and entertainment, business, um, industry, uh, media, just about every single element of Western society is completely being revolutionised. Uh, one particular institution is holding out against all of this change and it's the one that's doing most of the talking about change and that's the church. We talk about change, unprecedented change, 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 but we don't change. Do you find that ironic? It's like, you know, things are changing. It's all post-modern, post-Christian, post-this, post-that, but we'll just keep doing the same old thing we've always done. Why do we hold all these conferences, talk about all this change and then resolutely go back home and just crank it out one more time? Things are profoundly different. You know that. If you're under 35 years of age, you know, and have been to university, for example, you know the extraordinary shifts that are happening. And now they're just taken for granted. They're not avant-garde. They're not bohemian. They're not kind of spooky or edgy. That's just kind of life worldview 101. I want to tell you about an experience I had earlier. I was going to say earlier this year, but there's not much of this year, was there? Uh, Early last year. I was in uh, San Francisco and I went to an all-you-can-eat Ethiopian buffet. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Uh, it can only happen in San Francisco, can't it? Here I am at the all-you-can-eat Ethiopian buffet. I'm, meeting, I'm talking to this guy who took me along there. I was in San Francisco because I've been doing some research for a book 
a book I've written on alternative ways of doing church. The book hasn't come out yet, but last year I was doing the research for it. I'm sitting there at this table and a couple of guys come over and get talking to us. They know the guy that I'm talking to. And the, the three or the four of us start talking. These two guys that come over are as pagan and as non-Christian and as out there as they come. Totally bohemian artists living in San Francisco. And they say, what are you doing here in San Francisco? I say, I'm on a research trip. I'm writing a book. My publisher's given me some money. I'm travelling around the world looking at alternative ways of doing church. It's a hard life. They said, that's cool, man, because that's what they said, like, every sentence was, man, <laughs> or bro. That's cool, man, they said, uh, uh, we've just had the most amazing religious experience of our lives. I said, what, what was that? They said, we've just been to the Burning Man Festival. Now, you're all artists, creative people. Do you all know what Burning Man is? Burning Man is the most astonishing, outrageous, pagan arts festival in the world. It began about 10 years ago where a couple of hundred artists from San Francisco travelled east into Nevada, into the desert. And they began this festival called Burning Man. Now, tens of thousands of artists from all across America go to Burning Man and there are many Burning Mans happening all around America. It has unleashed a movement among the young pagan arts community in the United States. This is what happens. You drive out into a desert called the Black Rock Desert. There are no hills, no mountains, no trees, no nothing. As far as you can see on every horizon is flat earth strewn with boulders and rocks. It averages 45 degrees every single day. You are smack bang in the middle of hell. When it first began, as hundreds went out there, now tens of thousands go out there. No shops, no electricity, no nothing, no town, no nothing, as far as you can see. These tens and tens of thousands of artists, musicians, poets, writers, graphic designers, you name it, any kind of arts uh, uh, involvement, they travel to this place and they take everything to establish this temporary community. It is the most bizarre thing I've ever heard of. They gather together and for five days they create together. They paint, they build, they sculpt, they sing, they dance, you name it. It is so... I mean, let me tell you, it's pagan. It's totally fueled by drugs and sex and what have you. They are out there. In the middle of this community is this giant man. It looks like, you know those symbols of a man on men's toilets? Two arms, two legs and a round head. This gigantic man right in the middle of the community. You, you take all the food and everything that you're going to need for the week. No, you take more than enough food. In fact, you take twice or three or five or ten times the amount of food you'll need because one of the fundamental values of this Burning Man community is generosity and hospitality. So you always take extra sleeping bags, an extra tent. You might take a camper van out there with extra space in it so that you or I could just turn up out there, no food, no nothing. And one of the fundamental values is that they will take you in, give you somewhere to sleep, they will feed you. Some people turn up, pull up the roller shutter on their van and just hand out food all week. Everything is free. No money changes hands. No one buys anything. No one sells anything. It's nothing but generosity and hospitality. Their values are everyone is acceptable. Everyone is valued. No one is a geek. No one is a loser. No one has nothing to contribute. Everyone has something that they can offer. I I didn't go to Burning Man because I'm too scared to, to be quite honest. But I got this off their website. Uh, Larry Harvey is the guy who started it. He says this on his website, you artists belong here 
and you participate. You're not the weirdest kid in the classroom. There's always somebody there who's thought up something you'd never even considered. You're there to breathe art. Imagine an ice sculpture admitting glacial music in the desert. Imagine the man, that's this giant edifice thing. Imagine the man greeting you, neon and benevolence, watching over the community. You're here to build a community that needs you and relies on you. How's this? Uh, You create art for the whole week. Some people go and create these massive art installations. Some people just walk around naked all week and paint their bodies. Or let other people paint their bodies. Some people just paint their cars. You don't even have to be artistic in any sense. You have to be creating something all week. One of the key um, moments in the Burning Man Festival is when everyone has to get naked, get on a, a bicycle, where they provided thousands of bicycles, blindfolded and ride out into the desert. <laughs> Again to the website. I know you think it sounds good, don't you? Well, if you check your programs on Thursday afternoon, (laughs) listen to what Larry Harvey says. You're here to create. Since nobody at Burning Man is a spectator, you're here to build your own new world. You've built an egg for a shelter, a suit made of light sticks. Your car now looks like a shark's fin. You've covered yourself in silver. You're wearing a straw hat, a string of pearls and nothing else. Or maybe you put a skirt on for the first time. The ultimate end, the pinnacle of the Burning Man Festival is when all the people who've created all this art all week take their art and process through the desert to the foot of the Burning Man. Burning Man, it's called Burning Man, you can figure where we're going, can't you? They then light this gigantic man and as he blazes in the desert with nothing around, no lights, no nothing, can you imagine this? You then cast all your art into the flames. Now, if you painted your own body, I'm not sure what you'd do. (laughs) You cast your art into the flames. The two guys in the Ethiopian restaurant who were talking to me said, it was one of the most transformative experiences of our lives. We danced around this burning man. We hooted and yelled and screamed. Listen to the words they said. We felt atoned for. We felt refreshed and cleaned and washed in, in some particular way. All of a sudden, the world was different. We just felt at one with everyone. This is one hell of a pagan festival, is it not? (laughs) (laughs) And when it's all over, they all go away. Uh, Again, Larry Harvey says this, you leave as you came. When you depart from Burning Man, you leave no trace. Everything you built, you dismantle. The waste you make and the objects you consume leave with you. Volunteers will stay for weeks to return the black rock desert to its pristine condition. But you'll take the world you built with you. When you drive back down the dusty roads toward home, you slowly reintegrate into the world you came from. You feel in tune with the other dust-covered vehicles that shared the same community. Over time, vivid images still dance in your brain floating back to you when the weather changes. The Burning Man community, whether your friends or your new acquaintances or the Burning Man project, embraces you. At the end, though your journey to and from Burning Man are finished, you embark on a different journey forever.
Now why do I start this week by telling you that story? I start by telling you that story because I think Burning Man and festivals like it around this country are some of the single biggest affronts to the Christian movement that we've ever encountered, ever. You know, we used to be worried about liberals. Some people used to be worried about Pentecostals. We used to be worried about this movement or that movement. We used to be worried about untruth seeping in. Now what we've got is a whole world around us which are discovering truth, community, values, sharing, love, compassion, atonement, forgiveness, refreshing, new life, new birth. And they are finding it entirely and completely and totally outside the Christian experience. Now don't get me wrong, I don't think they're actually really discovering forgiveness there in the Black Rock Desert, do you? I don't think they're really being atoned for. I don't think they're really discovering what they think they are. But by jingos, once you've been to the Burning Man Festival, do you want to go to First Baptist Church in San Francisco? Once you've encountered something which is all-consuming, overwhelming, transformative, as communally oriented, when you've shared and been shared with, when you have been accepted totally and unconditionally, when you felt like a loser all your life or a geek or a weirdo or someone who's not quite in the mainstream and you go to the Nevada desert and suddenly you're hip, you're cool, you're loved, you're accepted, you've got something to offer. Do you want to go back to the church that's going to judge you for what you wear or think or do with your life? Do you follow what I'm saying? It is undermining the very foundations of the church in the West. Not the Burning Man Festival, but the movement that it represents. There is an affront to us because there used to be a time, people, when there was Christian and non-Christian, where if you were religious, you went to church, and if you weren't, you didn't. When, I think Robert Menzies was the Prime Minister or something when these days were happening. Long, long ago. Aren't they, Kev? <laughs> if you didn't go to church and if you weren't a Christian, that meant you weren't religious. It was it used to be census forms, a denomination. You put no religion, stuff like that. Did you fill in the census last year? Did you see any religions were mentioned there? Listen, people, it isn't Christian and non-Christian. It's not religious and not religious. We're living in a time where most people identify themselves as being religious of some kind. And they're actually finding some sense of purpose, meaning, community, acceptance, love, creativity in places entirely devoid of the Christian experience. In fact, most people say, I go to church and what I encounter there is life painted in pastels. But I go out into my world that's filled with vibrant, bright, primary colours. You've been to the big day out? You've been to any festival where it's people wear what they want to wear, be what they want to be. Everything is writ large in huge letters. The colours are bright and vibrant. And then we say, you know, you should come to my church. And we think it doesn't even compare. I don't know what your churches are like, but most of us say, that churches don't even compare. Well, I'm talking to these two guys in the all-you-can-eat Ethiopian buffet. They said to me, after they explained their atonement, so-called atonement experience in Burning Man, they turned to me and they said, so you're looking at different ways that the church can be. I said, that's right. Oh, they said, well, that's great. I mean, we think the church is cool, man. They said, we haven't been there for 20 years. And when we went to church 20 years ago, I mean, it was just a whole whole bunch of songs and then someone would preach at you for a long time. I mean, I'm so glad things are changing. 
And so it's different now that you're discussing. I had to confess them. I said, it's not different now at all, mate. The things that I'm discovering are underground churches, new movements, experimental things, embryonic ideas. But the mainstream of church, it's the same way it was 20 years ago. It's the same way it was 100 years ago. I had to break this to you. It's the same way it was 500 years ago. Songs might be different. The buildings might look different. But the basic same template hasn't changed. I'd like to argue it hasn't changed for a 1,000 years. I've heard some people say it hasn't changed for 1,700 years. The basic same format. When you have just gobbled up primary colours, when you've just been totally accepted for who you are, when you've found a community of generosity, love and acceptance, tolerance, do they really want to trade that in for what we claim is the right experience and come to places where most of the time you sit there like dummies and do nothing, where most of the time you don't feel accepted, where there's certain factions and groups, people who don't speak to other groups, where you've got to conform to fit in. Why do they want that experience? My concern is this, people. What they are searching for in the Black Rock Desert, what they are yearning for as that man goes up in flames, is they are yearning for Jesus. What, what that man represents to me is a, a deformed image of Christ on the cross. They want what we've got. But they can't see what we've got because all they can see is the church blocking their vision of what it is that we claim that we believe. Are you all with me up to this point? Because people always say, ah, oh, Frosty, you always bag the church. You're supposed to love the church. We're not called to love the church. We are the church. Who's called to love the church? Jesus. Jesus is the groom. We are the bride. We're not called to love the church. Jesus will do all the loving that we need. Who are we called to love? We are called to love Christ and we are called to love the world around us. Do you follow? But listen, I do love the church, otherwise I would have bailed ages ago. How about you? I do love the church and I'm in it. And I'm in it because I dare to believe that all we can do is recover that missional genius that the church had at the very beginning, before we encased it in buildings before we started ordaining special people to do ministry on our behalf, before we started putting ourselves all in rows, playing school on Sundays, before we started to lose the dynamic, wild energy of the initial church. You see, when you read the Gospels of Jesus, what you discover is a burning man kind of Messiah. Jesus was wild, totally uncontrolled, untamed, how many of you read uh, The Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe when it's explained to Lucy? You know, you don't cuddle up to Aslan. You know, he's not a bedtime, he's not a stuffed toy. He's not a kind of gooey, cuddly kind of lion. He's an untamed beast. He's wild. You don't know what he's going to do next. Uh, when I first read that, I thought, that's the Jesus I've been searching for. He was wild, untamed. It was all in primary colours. It was bright and blazing. You know, the people who understood what Jesus was on about most were not his followers. They didn't get it. Who were the people that understood what Jesus was on about? The people who wanted to kill him. The Pharisees cottoned onto it. They said, this Messiah is untamed. This Messiah is wild. This Messiah is out of control. If we don't snuff this out now, if we don't end this, it's combustible. It will completely turn the world upside down. If you want a Messiah that's soft and cuddly and you can take him to bed at night and snuggle up with him, find some other religion. Try Buddhism or something. But if you want a Messiah who's wild and crazy, not a Messiah that you can't trust, not a Messiah that's, that, that's um, uh, not, not um, 
oh, that phone put me right off. I forgot where I was going now. <laughs> a Messiah who's unpredictable, whose love has totally combustible energy. My friends, that is what I'm yearning for in the West. Don't tell me the church can't die out. I know the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, but don't tell me the church in Australia can't become so minimal we just look like the stamp collecting club. <laughs> Listen, Paul planted most of his churches in what country? Turkey. What's the Christian community in Turkey look like now? Virtually zip. The church after the apostles, the next wave of the church, was totally dynamic right across North Africa. What's the church in North Africa look like now? Zip. Don't tell me it can't stop. Don't you dare imagine, oh, the church will always be here. God will ensure it. The church has flamed and died out in various parts of the world. Unless we stay on our metal, stick to the word, and seek to follow the untamed, wild energy of Jesus, we will find ourselves an irrelevant institution if we're not already that as it is. We will find ourselves marginalised in our community and we'll just look like some bizarre little club along with all the other little clubs in our world. We will be off the world stage. We won't make a difference any longer. And in order for us to understand how we work our way back to the missional energy that we discover in the very earliest days of the church, I need to ask you to follow me uh, thinking about world views. That was a segue into the boring part of this talk. <laughs> you need to understand that in our culture, in the West, people tend to look at their world in two broad ways. That is, yeah, get up your pens and get ready. Here we go. <laughs> that is, we look at the world uh, in a dualistic worldview, D-U-A-L, dualistic worldview, or we think of it in a holistic worldview, either dualistic or holistic. I want to explain to you a bit about dualism for a minute. Dualism, when you see the world in two separate categories, generally sees the world as sacred on the one hand and profane or non-religious or non-holy on the other hand. Do you follow? We drive a wedge right between the spiritual realm and the material realm. This is not a biblical worldview. The Greeks and the Romans invented this and the church eventually bought it holus bolus. You won't find it in the Bible and don't try and find it there. Dualism separates the world into these two categories. In one category, we as Christians put church going, Bible study, worship, home groups, serving the poor, beach missions, Kuma musician seminar, all that goes in a kind of sacred realm. You notice how when we're in the sacred realms, how many people say we're here to meet God? Because where does God live? In the sacred realm. You know, here we are, let's meet God. Uh, uh, you know, we're going to Kuma to meet God. You think of all places God is in Kuma? <laughs> like he could be in the Vatican, like he could be, he could be in Jerusalem. I mean, at least New York or Paris or London, like he's in Kuma? <laughs> So what we do in this box is we say this is the religious zone. That's where religious stuff happens. And so we go into church. We go into Bible study. We go into the church. We make it a separate zone. You're following me? The other way we look at the world is the profane. That's the non-religious. That's the ordinary world. That's where you put sport and leisure and work and study 
and having sex and raising kids and gardening and going to the movies and surfing and whatever you happen to do. That's all just profane, ordinary stuff. It's not bad, it's not evil, it's just ordinary. We don't expect God is there. I mean, we know God is there, but we don't really expect to encounter God in that kind of place. So when you divvy your world up into these two zones, and this is ordinary world, and this is the sacred world, the only way, by and large, for us to meet God is for us to go out of the ordinary profane world into the sacred world, right? I know you know God is at the beach and God is in your school and God is at your you know. I know you know that, but you don't live like that by and large. Let's go and meet God. We open meetings with prayer. Lord, you know, be present with us now. I always imagine God going, I wasn't present already? What? <laughs> How many churches have you been to? It's like, um, uh, Lord, we welcome you here. Welcome you here. Like, where was I before this, says God? Like, I was hiding outside. You know, I was waiting for the clock. Don't want to turn up too early. Want to make a big impression. We know that that's not true. You're all laughing at it. But boy, oh boy, do we, we live like that. So much of our language is like that. Some of the ways that we think about our world is like that. God is not in your workplace. That's just an office with a desk and a computer. God is not at your school. Just a bunch of classrooms and a point. God's not there. You know in your head, if you have to tick a question, yes, God is there, but you don't really sense him. When you go to the movies, you think that's a place where God isn't. So you switch off the God, so-called God part of your brain. When you go out to a club, you think God's not there, you switch off the so-called God part of your brain. Are you all with me? That's dualism. It's not in the Bible. It wasn't invented by Christians. not Jewish. It's made up by Greeks and Romans. And the church is full of it. I love saying that. The church is full of it. <laughs> the church is totally marinated in dualism. It's entirely the way we think about our world, even though we know it's not meant to be like that. And so how many talks, how many sermons, how many conventions are people talking about God showing up in these dramatic ways? So it's always, wow, look at God. But then I have to go back to my workplace. Wow, look at God. But I'm going to go to uni tomorrow. Uni can be just as wow and wild and untamed as these stories you hear, except we're caught in this dualistic world. I'll never forget being in a conference in, um, in a, I won't tell you where, in a Victoria somewhere. And this guy was telling us the story, this, this preacher was telling us the story about how he did revivals all around India and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people came to Jesus. Hundreds and thousands of people had come forward to accept Christ as their Lord and Saviour. And on one occasion, while he was preaching, miracles, revival, astonishing things were happening. These people dragged this dead body down the aisle and they threw this dead body at the front of the church. And they said, if your God is so great, you raise this body from the dead. And so the guy who's speaking said, well, what else could I do? I just have to raise him from the dead. I mean, a man's got to do what a man's got to do. That's an astonishing story. This guy's come, this, this corpse comes back to life. People are ooing, ahhing, wow, ooh, ooh, wow. God is great, God is good. I turned to the person next to me, I said, you ever done anything like that? She said, I've never even seen a dead body. I said, tell me what your world is like. She said, well, I'm a young mum. I've got uh, three kids under school age. I, I, I basically, my, my life is my lounge room. It's covered, you know, with high chairs and poopy nappies and baby food and half-sucked baby rusk thingamajigs and, and the TV's on and uh, the wiggles are blaring out 
You know, my life is basically picking up the phone, talking to someone, saying, look, sorry, I can't talk, i got to go. Half-finished conversations, I mean, that's my life. Shopping, raising babies, putting them to bed, sleeping, that's just my life. Now, I want to ask you a theological question. Is God present in that lady's lounge room with the wiggles blaring out and the babies and the poop and the food and the this and the that? Absolutely, you know he is. So she goes to a conference and she's left with the impression the only time God happens to be present is when some revival happens, some dead body's brought back to life, some great miracle happens. I'm not disputing this man's stories. I don't even know him. Or I'm not even disputing the issue. What I'm saying is we only ever hear about the times when something spectacular happens and so in the end we think that's when God is most present. Is God present right now? Wake up before death wakes you up. The alternative to this dualism, these two zones, is to look at the world holistically. That is where you see the so-called religious and the non-religious all combined together. Where you can go to the football and you can worship God watching the, the, the football. You worship God watching the cricket. You can hear God speak to you through films. You can go to a dinner party. You can go clubbing. You can go wherever you happen to go. And you can sense God's presence and learn something about God and be enriched by your experience of God. And this is all making sense to you, isn't it? Well, why don't you live like this? Why don't you clear your ears out? Why don't you put some, some spiritual drops in your eyes and have a look around? What's God been whispering at you every single jolly day? But you were just waiting to meet him in church, weren't you? You were just waiting to get to Kuma so you could meet him. Wake up. God is present. This is the worldview of Jesus. Jesus does not see sacred versus profane. Jesus doesn't say, hey guys, we've done a bit of fishing, now let's go to the synagogue so we can meet God. Oh, actually, I am God, so you can meet me. <laughs> you know, the world is not separated out like that. When Jesus talks about God, what does he do? He tells stories about women cleaning their homes trying to find something that's lost, about shepherds finding lost sheep, about business managers trying to rip off their boss. And people used to listen to him, the religious people used to listen to him and say, this isn't about God, there's no mention of God. Where's the law? Where's Moses? Where's Abraham? Where's all the religious stuff? What Jesus was able to do is to take the ordinary and see God in the midst of it. Do you follow? What Jesus was able to do is to take a little child out of a crowd and say, we can learn something about the kingdom from this child. He's able to see a Roman centurion, a pagan, totally and utterly outside the so-called kingdom of God as far as Jews were concerned, and say, I've never seen such faith as this. This man could see fishing, gardening, housework, you name it, as expressions of God's wonder and grace to us. And this is the kind of worldview we need to recover if we're going to embrace the untamed nature of the gospel. You see, listen. The only way we can reach our friends with the gospel in a dualistic worldview is to invite our friends out of the profane world to come with us into the sacred world. 90% I think of evangelism and mission is made up of people trying to get their friends to come to something. If you've invited all your friends to come to something and the few that are going to come have come, what are you going to do with the rest of them? They don't want to go to church. Have you worked that out? Some of us don't want to go to church. They don't want to come. How many times are you going to ask them? Are you thinking that if you ask them 10, 20, 50 times, maybe something will happen? Or are you able to see 
But the real Christian worldview is to not say, you meet God by coming with me to my, my evening service, coming with me to this Youth Alive concert, coming with me to the Katoomba Christian Convention, come with me, come with me, come with me, cross this line, then you'll meet Jesus. No, no, no. What we've discovered is this. God is present with those people who don't know him yet in all sorts of circumstances. God doesn't get interested in you when you come to church. You with me? I believe that the most pagan friend of yours that you can think about has had God whispering in his ear, hanging around him, seeking, searching for him all of his life. Do you believe that? I just believe he hasn't spotted it, hasn't heard it, hasn't seen it. People wake up. One of Jesus' most amazing miracles is the most extraordinary act of debauchery that you've ever seen. He whips up more wine at a drunken wedding. Go figure. I mean, you know, you know what a, 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 a wedding in Jesus' time was like? When a man discovered that he had a daughter, on the day that she was born, he would siphon off a barrel of his house wine and put it aside. Then every year on her birthday, he would put a barrel of his house wine, table wine aside. So that when she got married, usually about 16, 17 or so, he would have 16 or 17 barrels of wine set aside for her wedding. And some of this... 16 years old. <laughs> some of it got siphoned off yesterday and it tastes like vinegar. But some of it, man, this stuff is hot. And at any good wedding, which wine do you start with? You start with the old stuff and you work your way through 16 barrels of wine. And so that by the time this wedding runs out of wine, these guys have worked their way through 16 barrels. Can you imagine what they're like? They're like three sheets of the wind. They're on the table naked with, with um, lamps on their heads. <laughs> this is just totally outrageous. And then finally, they run out of wine and the host is totally embarrassed. We've run out of wine. Oh, my goodness. We'll be shamed forever. Oh, yes, we remember you. You ran out of wine at your daughter's wedding, didn't you? What am I going to do? And what does Jesus do? Well, what would we do? We would stand up and we would say, well, I hope you all feel sorry about yourselves in the morning. <laughs> I hope you learn a valuable lesson. Those of you who can hear me. Now go home and think about what you've been doing. Now Jesus takes barrels of water, jugs of water which have been set aside for religious purification. That is a symbol of something which separates out the sacred from the profane. Get it? Don't tell me Jesus isn't cute. He takes this water, he turns it into wine and continues to fuel a drunken Canaan wedding. This is your Messiah. Are you feeling a bit uncomfortable? He was completely and utterly disrespectful of any of those so-called lines between God lives here, you live there and tries to grab the ordinary world, shake it out and allow the spiritual realm to sift through it. Now, when you live like that, you get heartily misunderstood. Some of you victims of that. When you live able to embrace art, entertainment, culture, when you live in a way which embraces the ordinary and the everyday, when you can party with non-Christians, when you can celebrate in, with pagan groups of people, when you can enjoy culture, People say, 
We should come out of all of that. You should come into our building so that we can lock the door behind you and keep you safe here in the sacred zone. Are you all with me? You know, the way out is not to be led by bureaucrats and academics. The way out is not to be led by pastors and teachers. I hate to tell you that. I'm a pastor, a teacher. I teach at a theological college. I'm in the club. But you know the way out? The way out is to be led by way out people. And the most way out people I know are artists, musicians, dancers, bricklayers. <laughs> the way out is to be led by those who are able to poke their head out of the dualism and embrace a holistic worldview. Do you follow what I'm saying? Do you know that video that we watched last night with Philippa playing the, um, playing the prostitute anointing Jesus' feet? I mean, I don't know what your reaction to it was, but I thought that is very provocative. Here's a gorgeous woman pouring oil all over this guy's feet, kissing them, draping her long hair in his feet. If you felt uncomfortable or edgy about that, that's exactly the very tenor that the story has in Luke's Gospel. Exactly. It's like what wasn't in the video, was, uh, but, but was probably in your heart, was Simon the Pharisee's reaction, which was, ha, huh, look at this, erotic display. Look at this beautiful woman, half-dressed, running her hair along his feet, kissing him. Look at this. If this guy was Messiah, he would know what's in her heart. And yet our Messiah, the wild, untamed beast, Jesus, is able to accept this as a sacrifice and an offering of repentance and forgiveness and grace. It's artists who can create something like that, not preachers. Do you follow? It's artists who can dance in a way which provokes us to see things the way we hadn't. Poets, writers, filmmakers, animators, musicians. The The only beef I have with musicians is that most Christian musicians just want to write Britney Spears and Mariah Carey music. I think, come on! Revolutions were fought to music, weren't they? Revolutions made your blood boil and forced you up and out of the trenches. And we're singing pop music. Write something which makes our blood boil. Dance something which shatters all of our perceptions. Paint something which provokes and disturbs us. Lead us out of this dualism and help us embrace a worldview that allows us to see God in the all and the everyday and the everything. Does this all make sense to you? You are our hope as long as you don't get hill-songed into being as conventional as you can be. You are our... I told you I'd offend you. You are our hope as long as you are able to invite us into a much more holistic worldview. I want you to paint in primary colours. I want you to dance naked. I want you to... (laughs) As long as I don't have to preach naked, I'll be okay. (laughs) We've got to abandon this separation between us and the world. The church does it all the time. How many of your services end with, and now as you go out into the world... You think, right, this isn't the world. Where did I go? (laughs) I slipped into some other realm somewhere. What's happened? You're in the jolly world, all right? In church, it's in the world. 
There's places in the world. We're in the world. We don't go out into the world. We're in the world. We don't go out into God's presence. We're in God's presence. We didn't come out of non-presence into God's presence. Do you follow? And what we do is we divide church and unchurch, Christian and non-Christian. You try selling that to the Burning Man generation. You try selling that to people who've danced naked around a flaming man and felt in some way they've been atoned for. And then you go and say, well, no, actually, I've been atoned for. Not you. I have. Oh, really, man? What's that look like? Well, I go to church and sit and listen to sermons and sing a few pop songs and then I go home. The missional genius was that we create communities of acceptance, don't we? Love, grace, hospitality, generosity, where everyone is welcome. No one's a geek or a loser. Where God's grace is expressed through the love that we have for one another. Where we lead revolutions against injustice. Where we rage against hatred. Where we refuse to be silenced in the midst of evil when we become this most subversive, radical movement of God's love in this world. I want you to be untamed. And I'll tell you what, I know your church ain't going to like it. I want to close by telling you a story of two pubs, or two Christians who've taken over pubs. I remember reading in the Melbourne Age recently that the Baptist Church in Hamilton in Victoria had bought the local pub. Now, Hamilton Baptist Church had an inadequate building on the edge of town. The Hamilton Hotel, smack bang in the middle of town, had come up for sale. And so the Baptists decided it was prime real estate, right opposite the post office, in the main street, they would buy it and they would take it over. Sounds radical, doesn't it? Sounds subversive and edgy. It sounds like shattering this dualism and us breaking out of our systems and going into the world where people are. You know what they did to the, the Hamilton pub? They totally gutted it. They totally gutted it. They got rid of all the grog. They turned the nightclub into a church sanctuary, the front bar into a coffee shop, and the, the back bar was turned into the youth group area. It was totally cleaned and sanctified. There was no longer even a fume of alcohol left in that building. The article quoted all these great Christian leaders saying how fantastic it was, how radical it was, how innovative it was. We've moved into the community. There's one line, one line in this article, where a a local farmer, a guy called Bruce McKellar, aged 71, was asked what he thought of the Baptists taking over the local pub. And he said, well, I'll miss my spot at the bar, but I'll always be able to find my place somewhere else. And then on goes the story of how great it was. That one line stood out to me. Farmer McKellar, 71 years old, who sits at that place at the bar every single day, probably, has got to move down to the Rose and Crown or whatever's down the street. Does it sound innovative and radical to you? Or does it sound like taking over a space and making it sanctified that might as well be a cathedral, a church building? Now I want to tell you about another pub. This pub is in Bradford in North England. Bradford is a hard scrabble town. Bradford's where the the Asians and the blacks have riots against each other. Only last year they did this. It's working class, poverty stricken, a racially divided community in the north of England. A group of Christians in Bradford discovered that the Cock and Bottle Hotel, (laughs) I wondered who'd laugh, that the Cock and Bottle Hotel, this bright yellow building at the bottom of the high street, had come up for sale. 
And so they put together a thing called the English Christian Pub Consortium. (laughs) Which is kind of like an all-you-can-eat Ethiopian buffet. (laughs) And they bought the cock and bottle. And they run the cock and bottle as a going concern. And all the locals are still locals at the cock and bottle. And lots of people who had been at other pubs but found no love or acceptance are now going to the cock and bottle. Gordon Willis, the guy who heads up the English Christian Pub Consortium, serves behind the bar every day. He's a Baptist, a teetotaler, never drunk alcohol in his life. He knows how to mix a mean drink. In the north of England, that's beer. Lager, thank you. So on question, they said, what what kind of church is this? What kind of group of Christians would serve alcohol to people who may get drunk, who might be alcoholics? And Gordon said this, maybe we shouldn't be serving booze to guys who don't need it. But if we didn't serve it, they would just go to the pub across the road and get it anyway. I read my Bible, said Gordon, and from what I could gather, Gordon's no theologian. He said, I read my Bible and I asked myself, where would Jesus be? And I believe that Jesus would be in the front bar of the Cock and Bottle Hotel. We love the living daylights out of them. We've done their funerals. We've prayed for them. We've led some to Jesus because we have refused to believe that God is not present in that pub. We've refused to believe that we've got to sanctify it and make it holy in order for God to come into it. Now, are you radical enough to start a Christian art gallery that no one knows is Christian? Are you radical enough to set up a design lab and serve the business community of your area and to make relationships with them? Are you radical enough to run a pub? Are you radical enough to start a cafe? Are you radical enough to go to places where people already are believing God is present and you'll be safe? Now, I know there are enormous implications of the things that I've said. Implications about how do we stay holy? How do we not compromise? How do we not end up living like pagans ourselves? Fair questions, and I want to deal with those in the days to come. But what I would like you to do is to shake off that template that someone dropped on your head that said church only happens like this. God only turns up when this happens. When we kind of sing hard enough, then maybe God will appear. I want you to shake it away. I want you to come back with this kind of open mind that artists primarily have. And say, I'm going to suspend judgment. I'm going to hear you out, Frosty. I'm going to see whether maybe what we discover in the Bible is actually not a building, not an institution, not an organisation, but a feisty, radical, untamed community of people 